You can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, continue our sermon series there. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're looking at the first four verses today. We have here a chapter, as I mentioned already, really, when we were singing, that sets forth to us the examples of Old Testament believers, men of renown for their faith. Having learned in Hebrews about Jesus Christ and the beautiful, as the beautiful and excellent object of our faith, these examples will help you to learn what it is to live by faith. In the passage we're looking at today, we have an introduction to this whole subject. The emphasis here is, is not so much to give a, a formal definition of faith like we have in the Westminster Confession, but it's more to talk about what faith looks like in its exercise, what faith looks like as it's lived out. That's what this chapter is about. And even what we're looking at today, it kind of gives a definition of faith, but it's more the idea of how faith affects you in your everyday life than it is exactly how faith justifies us or what faith, that, that sort of thing. So we need to understand what the purpose is. If we're over in Romans or Galatians, we're looking at how faith justifies us. If we're in Hebrews at this point, we've already seen all that is done in our Lord Jesus Christ and how we have justification through his righteousness and, and suffering and death and so on. But uh, now we have, okay, how does, that, how does that affect the way we live? In the, in the world. So that, that's really what we're looking at. It, uh, and of course the answer is that it makes us thrive in our walk with God. That word thrive kept coming to my mind uh, this week. I, I, I found it very fruitful um, praying for, for each one of you, each family in our church, that you would thrive in the Lord. That's really what we want, isn't it? And that's what this whole chapter is really, really talking about. Thriving in the Lord. So listen as I read this first part to you. It's again the verse 1 to verse 4 of Hebrews 11. It's the word of God. So may God use this richly in your life and bring blessing to you as you hear it as the word of God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are invisible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. And thanks be to God for his infallible holy word. I'm going to take each of these verses this morning and show you what faith does when we have it. It changes everything. So let's get underway. Hebrews 11.1 shows you that faith brings God into your life. Now, you may not see that right away, but I'll, I'll show you what I mean. 
It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What are the things hoped for? What is it that that we're talking about when we say things hoped for? Well, this speaks, of course, of purpose and direction. Where, Where are you going? It's going, of course, a hope it's going to something good, to a desired future outcome. Now, we'll look at the meaning of the whole verse in a few minutes, but I want to begin with this phrase, the things hoped for, to see what that really entails. What is it, as God's people, that we ultimately hope for? I would put to you that it is communion with God. That is our ultimate purpose. That is your purpose. You are meant to know Him as He truly is. To worship Him and adore Him. To consciously receive all of your blessings from His hand. So that you give thanks whatever you receive from His hand. To find out what is pleasing to Him. And to serve Him. Communion with God. There's a giving and receiving between us and Him. Obeying Him. Enjoying Him. Trusting Him. Living in God. You are meant to grow into a greater and greater fullness in this communion with God. This growing and learning of Him and serving Him is to keep growing for all eternity because He is inexhaustible. He is God. You will not reach the end of knowing God. You are to be forever finding out His greatness, discovering the depths and the fullness of His glory. We'll go on and on. This growing is made possible by depending upon Him. It always was. That's how it was when Adam and Eve were first created. It wasn't like they had to depend on Him. Now we have to depend on Him because we fell. We, had, we needed to depend on Him all the time, all the way from the beginning. That's what they ceased to do, really. It was a kind of a, a, a breach of, of trusting in God. They didn't, they didn't continue to trust in Him. So we look to Him to reveal Himself, to make Himself known to us. We don't know Him unless He reveals Himself to us. He's invisible to us. We can't comprehend Him. Uh, we can't even see Him. Uh, looking to Him also, we look to Him also to transform us to help us to live in conformity, showing us the way and enabling us to to live for Him. So what is Hebrews? We've been in Hebrews for a while. What is it called, this hope? What are some of the terms that are used for it? I mean, it's all through. It's called making us perfect, back in Hebrews 2.10. It's called our eternal rest in Hebrews 4. It's called being saved to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25. It's called having His law written in your heart so that you will obey it to summarize in in Hebrews 8.10 and 8.11. It's all knowing Him from the least of us to the greatest of us. Knowing God. It is called the promise of an eternal inheritance in 9.15. An inheritance. What is key about that inheritance? Just like Israel's inheritance what was different about Canaan than some other land in particular? Was it just that it was a better land, that it had nicer facilities and stuff? No, that God was there. That's always the focus, you see. It's communion with God. They were going to a land where they would live as God's people and have communion with God. That is our ultimate final inheritance. 
an eternal inheritance. It's a, a better, it's called a better and enduring possession in Hebrews 10.34. It's called a great reward in Hebrews 10.35. This is our hope, you see, that, that we have. So, like I say, I wanted to, to begin by looking at that phrase there right at the beginning of chapter 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. We need to know what it is. So that kind of puts it together for us. Now, from this great purpose of communion with God, the human race fell. We continued in this purpose for but a very short time, and then we foolishly turned, like Proverbs 2. Now, come and have your purse with us, Satan said. And he led us into the rebellion of himself and the, and the angels. We continued in this purpose then for a short time when our first parents ate the forbidden fruit. They turned from finding their purpose in God to try to find a hope in themselves, a fulfillment from going their own way, doing their own thing. You'll be better if you do what you want, Satan said. It's such a futile endeavor. We are mere creatures. He is the creator. How can we find purpose in something that that was brought into being by God. It's a dead end. It's a path to utter misery, like Proverbs tells us. Not only is it stupid, but it incurs God's eternal judgment. It's a pathway of folly that it's not going to get anywhere. But what's worse is it brings judgment and condemnation upon us. Our hope of communion with God then perished. We could no longer see Him as He is, We could no longer learn of him rightly. Now our knowledge of him was all distorted and and twisted by our twisted fallen minds that don't, don't get it, don't see things clearly. Instead of seeing him as he is, we began to embrace idols. We had hard thoughts of God, that he's not a good God. We began to have all kinds of confusion, confused versions of him, and we ended up with one who is not really much different than we are, one that is like us. We became as one living apart from reality. We could still see the visible world around us. See this way. We couldn't see this way. We couldn't look up. We couldn't see God. We didn't see His hand. More and more, He was not in our purview. Our perception of reality became devoid of the most important aspect of reality which is God it's like somebody living in a somebody in a room and there's a fire in there and they don't perceive it they don't know they don't get it they don't notice it or someone's in a place where there's a there's a great reward and they could go over and and participate in it and they don't even know about it they don't even acknowledge it they're 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 oblivious to it they can't see beyond their certain parameters We were left with no real or satisfying purpose, no destiny, nothing substantial to live for. Without the true God in our view, we were completely out of touch with reality. We were living a lie. We had a part of stuff that we could see that was real and true, but we couldn't see what is the place of hope, what is the unseen God that we can't see with our eyes. But our verse teaches that when faith comes, we are restored to God. 
First, it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The idea is that faith brings you back into connection with something, with our substantial hope, with what life is really for and all about. The word substance is often translated assurance or confidence. It's sometimes used in uh, the, uh, among the, you know, in, in, within the Greek culture, it was sometimes used of uh, a title to property or a guarantee. So it's kind of an interesting word. It has a, it has a broad uh, spectrum to it, really. But it has the idea, and it literally means standing under. It has a stasis. It's a hypostasis. You're standing under something. It brings you into man's original hope. You stand in there. Is a, a, you, you have that hope. Is something that is is substantial, something that's foundational, something that is sure, certain. All of these things come into play. You now have faith. You have assurance of eternal life and a fellowship with God. Though we are still in a fallen world, you have confidence in the promised mercy of God in Christ. You have this assurance of hope. Now the trials, of course, will come and, and afflict you and try to try to drive you away, but what they do is they end up making you stronger because your faith is tested. I mentioned before with Abraham when he was told he was going to be a multitude of nations, a multitude of nations would come from him and from his seed and that there would be blessing and the one that would bless all the nations would come from him and his wife was barren. God made that on purpose as a trial of his faith right into old age, beyond age to bear children and then God brought, God brought forth a son to him. His promise and covenant, you see, are a title of your eternal inheritance, your hope. The second part of the verse is parallel, essentially repeating the same thing as often is the case in uh, the way Hebrews, uh, he- Hebrew people think and write. It says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Things not seen because either we do not yet have them. So that would incorporate what we just looked at, things hoped for. It also includes things not seen because invisible to us unless revealed, being God. So uh, they are things that are known by faith, by believing what God has said and believing what God has promised. What He has promised, what He has said about Himself, about salvation, about our sin... We don't, we're not even clear about that when God's not in our purview, you see. Those things become clear when we come to God in faith. About the way that Christ atoned for us, that becomes clear. About His acceptance of Christ's offering for our sin. We wouldn't know that if He didn't tell us. About His eternal reign. About salvation for all who trust in Him. About the destruction of Satan and all of His minions that remain in rebellion with Satan. Now we can see God whom we could not see before. We can see our hope again. It clarifies all sorts of things for us. The word translated evidence in this second part of the verse comes from the verbal root that means to convince or to convict. You know, when Jesus is talking about it's going to be good for you when I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come, what does he say he will do? He will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the same word. So it's, it's a 
It's a convincing. It's, a, it's an evidence. It's a testimony. A, a, a conviction of things that you clearly see. Faith convinces you of things that are not seen because faith believes what God says that has not yet happened and what God promises, what is invisible but real. Faith, if you have it, has given you a complete paradigm shift. You are going along with God and without hope, but now you have both. You are going away from God, avoiding Him, until faith came. Now what are you doing? You're going to God. You're seeking God. That's a radical shift. A complete 180 degree turn. You're full now of hope and of eternal life. Your life is completely transformed. Now you live for those who do not have faith, what they cannot perceive. You're an enigma to them. Why are you living this way? Would be their question. There is then this radical paradigm shift. Your whole purpose is altered. Actually, it's not just altered. You find your purpose. The purpose that we were all made for. The true God is now in your purview. You are in touch with reality by faith. Hebrews 11.2 shows you that this faith transforms your whole life. Verse 2 says, By it, faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. What happens when someone has faith? It changes their life. That's what it shows. That is what the whole, this whole chapter is about. It tells you the effect that faith had on the ancients. How faith brought, that brought them into reality transform them in that reality. We will look at people like Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Moses, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, all sorts of people that we will look at as in their examples. It will tell us of their exploits, of the great things that they did in their lives because they trusted God. Because they were restored to God by faith. They did some very remarkable things. And things that, as I was describing a minute ago, make no sense to the world. Because it's only something that someone that believes in what the world cannot see. They believe in that and it doesn't make sense to them. For example, it will tell how Moses forsook Egypt when he might have reigned in the palace in Egypt all his life. And he went into the wilderness with the people who were suffering and who were tried and, and for 40 years and he never even got to go to the land that he was leading the people to. And he was happy. I mean, he wanted to go to the land, but, but he, he wasn't, it, it wasn't like he was frustrated and it was all over because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And he had hope and he knew that he was going to obtain that city. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. The people of Egypt, you can imagine, in the palace were like, what's with this guy? Why is he out there? Are these people in the wilderness, like camping out with him for 40 years and, and suffering and, that, and having them all complaining about him when he could be here living high in the palace? It's all because he had faith that communion with God was his destiny. That that was his hope. That that was what he was about. 
It is not that the lies of these men were always consistent, though. It was that God was at work in them and that they continually returned to their hope because God kept them. And they lived in the light of that hope, yearning for it and seeing it ahead of them. They looked to God for their happiness and ultimate blessing, even though they were still in a world of much sorrow and pain. In fact, most of them had, as we could say in a popular way, more than their share of sufferings. Most of the greatest ones that we read about had the most suffering. And they continued to hope in God because God kept them in communion with God, stood above whatever comforts, whatever troubles they might have in this life. Troubles that not only were common to other people, but troubles that came because they were following God and that would have been ceased if they had stopped following God. Those kind of troubles. And they showed that they really believed and that they were living a life of faith because they were looking to God for their reward. Now think of how this, you know, this, this, this transformed them. Think of how faith has transformed you. If you're a believer, you're going to God now. And you know this. To you, the world takes a secondary place. The world cannot understand you. Why do you live as you do? Why are you not getting drunk? Why are you not getting stoned? Why do you give a tithe? Why do you stand up for what is true, even when it is unpopular? And when people come against you for it, why do you do that? It's because you have hope, because you believe, you have certainty. How different your life is. You put off the old man, you put on the new man. You used to be angry and bitter. Now you're learning to be kind and patient with others. To care about other people instead of all swallowed up with yourself so that you get angry whenever people displease you in some way. You're considerate now of others and of what's going on with them and not just of your own needs. You used to cheat people. And now you go out of your way to do right to them. Because you've got a whole new perspective. You used to give up at, at, you, you used to give up and now you're learning to press on when things are going wrong. You used to throw in the, the towel. You say, oh, I still do. Like I said, yeah, we still wait. But we come back. God keeps us and we keep going on. And we're changing. We're growing. We're becoming more and more what we're called to be. Now you go to church on the Lord's Day, even when there's something that the world would say was way, way more um, exciting to do. Now you pray. Now you read God's word with desire to know him. You pray with desire for God to reveal himself to you and to bless his people and to keep his people. You cry out to him. You desire to know him. You obey his commandments. You love his law. You want to be conformed to what is pleasing to him. Now you are thankful to him. You, you receive the things that you have in this life with a whole new blessing to them as things that God has given you instead of just things that cannot really satisfy by themselves. Like the ancients in this chapter, as you go on like this, what happens? You get a good testimony. 
You begin to, you're, you're living in a different way that's obviously for God. Your testimony is your reputation. Even what God testifies about you and what he will testify about you. They, this one knows me. I know this one. Not depart from me, I never knew you. But this is one that I know. He delights in your progress. Remember what we saw in Song of Solomon? The fruit that's there. Even if it's just a little bit of fruit, it came from God and it's a marvelous thing because it's the beginning of great things to come. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the way that he brings that to us is is even by working in us so that we begin to see new life growing up in us. And it goes on and on. Thanks be to God. Now we have we see him who is invisible You have this good testimony because by faith you have his help. You have communion with him now in his graces. And because by faith you can see him who is invisible and you can see the city, the inheritance, the promise that he has given to you. And that's where your eyes are turned. Thanks be to God. What else does faith do? Hebrews 11.3 explains that by faith you know God as your creator. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God spoke the world into being, in other words. By faith, we understand that. It's not because we're smarter than other people and we were able to do a bunch of studies and figure out that, hey, you know, God spoke this all into existence by his word. Nobody can see that. We know that because God told us that, and we believe His Word is trustworthy because we know Him, we have faith in Him, and so therefore we believe that God brought the world into being by speaking. That's all He did. The worlds, the ages were framed, as it says, put together in an orderly way, is the idea of the word framed, by the Word of God. Now, it's not logos here. It's not talking about, that could refer to either the written word or to Christ, the living word. But the, the word here is rhema, the spoken word. Okay, God spoke it into existence. Now, Christ was, of course, as the, the one that was involved in bringing forth the creation. But we know that God did not make the... The point here is we know that God did not make the world out of pre-existing materials. He didn't gather a bunch of things together and start shaping them together. He just said, let there be light. There was no light. There was nothing. God made it all. There was only God. and He doesn't have a material substance. He brought it all into being by his word. Psalm 33 really crystallizes it by verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the hosts of them, by the breath of his mouth. That makes it very clear. He spoke and it came. He gathers the waters of the sea together. See, see, here's the forming of everything. Uh, He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. We know Because we believe what God has said, that he spoke, and it was so. 
Now, what does that affect, how does that affect us? Well, Psalm 33 actually mentions it. Because this believing this brings us before the true God in awe. We're, 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 we're overwhelmed with, with the greatness of one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the earth bring forth fruit, and the, and the trees and all the herbs and everything, and, and they, they all come forth. Bring forth animals. There they are. All the varieties, all the different, the complexity. He spoke, and it was done. Think of the power and wonder. Who can resist him then? We stand in awe of him. You want to go and uh, contend with someone like that? You're going to overcome him? He spoke, and all of this came into being. We see such wisdom in it to order it all so beautifully, to design it so wonderfully. The more we learn, the more we see the complexities of the, of the design, and the, the, it surpasses our, our understanding. Who can dispute with him then or become his counselor? Who can begin to dictate to God about how things ought to be done and ought not to be done? No, we bow before Him and we say, Lord, I'm a, I'm bow before Your feet. Teach me. Teach me what I need to know. Show me the way. Guide me. We see such kindness in the beauty that He created and the, and the wonderful things that He has given us to enjoy and the ability to see and enjoy those things. Why? Why should we have babies the way that we do? You know, why, why did he give us such an unusual process, such a delightful process in having children? Why should it be so pleasant to receive nourishment? Why don't we just, like, have our feet on the ground and get a bit of nourishment out of the soil somehow or something? It's, it's an enjoyable thing. Why did he do that? You see his goodness in all this. Thing. Why are there beautiful sunsets? Why are there... A variety of trees and colors and even color at all. Why? Why is there wine to cheer the heart of man? Truly, it calls for praise and trust to see him as the one who creates by the mere word of his power. It calls for boldness to see God as creator. Who can harm his people if he is defending them? Who can thwart him in bringing them from where they are into his eternal kingdom. What can man do to us? If God is for us, this one who speaks and it is so, who can be against us? Worship and praise is due to him. Knowing him as creator like this also causes us to see that everything is for him. Right? He's the one that made it all. It's all caught up in his purposes, not our purposes. We don't come and say, I'm going to impose my purposes on this. God is the one who has the purpose, and we come to him as creator. It's all for his glory. That means that everything you have and everything you enjoy, from a beautiful sunset to a new set of clothes, should bring forth thanksgiving. It means that you ought to use what you have for his purposes. Includes enjoying it, by the way whether it's music or sex with your spouse or steak. It includes giving things away to those who are in need, sharing things with others for their enjoyment. It includes using creation to be a blessing to your neighbor and the things you produce and the things that you make and the things that you do. Since he created you, it means that not only are all those things here for him, it means that you are here 
for him. He has a, if he has appointed a trial for you, you bear it for him. He's, he's the one that decided that. If he has appointed many trials for you, persecutions, it's for him. Seeing God as the one who created all by the word of his power cures you of chicken little syndrome. <laughs> you know what I mean by chicken little syndrome? You know about chicken little He's the one that thought the sky was falling and he ran around telling everyone to take cover because the sky was falling. There's a lot of chicken little stuff going on today. <laughs> you just turn on the news, you can find about 10 different chicken little scenarios, maybe more. Uh, you know, everybody's worried about looming disasters. Another virus on the way. Climate change. Devastating war. The whole world destroyed. Economic meltdown. All kinds of things. Uh, or more personal matters. You get sick. Maybe I've been diagnosed. Something's going to happen. I'm going to lose my job. Some of these things happen. The point is not that they don't happen. They do happen. But when you know God is in full control, you trust Him even if you suffer and die. There are meltdowns. There are economic destructions. There are wars that devastate and wipe out nations. That happens. And I'm not going to say that because you trust in God, that doesn't happen. What doesn't happen is if you are His and His purpose of bringing you into ultimate communion with Him is never, ever, ever thwarted by these things. And so you don't need to run around saying, it's all over. Everything's ruined. It's all, there's nothing we can do. It's all chicken little syndrome. You come and say, we trust in the living God. And people say, well, don't you see what's happening? Like, people are dying. I do. And I trust in the living God. My, my destiny is not set in this perishing world. This world is perishing. I, my hope is in communion with God. When you believe God created everything, you know that He's not going to lose control of it. <laughs> do you think the one that spoke all of this into existence, is going to lose control of it? He's going to say, oh no, what's happening? What can I do? God is in full control. You know that whatever calamities come, even if it is a worldwide flood that destroys everything except one family in a boat, that came from God. Not thwarting His purpose, but actually bringing about His purpose in the world. So we trust in Him. You trust in Him remembering that you are here for Him, that we are here for Him. He created the world and He created you by faith. You know that because you know that God spoke and it came to be. So you see that by faith we know God is Creator. Now we'll turn to verse 4 and see what else we know by faith. I felt like it was necessary to add uh, going into the first uh, person of faith that's mentioned here in Hebrews because it brings a kind of a completion. We have creation. What else comes from trusting God? Redemption. We trust Him as Creator. We trust Him as Redeemer. So here, Hebrews 11.4 shows you that by faith, you know God is Redeemer. So here is Abel. 
one of the sons of Adam and Eve. He was the first one to be killed for his faith. And here's what it says in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. Abel shows faith in God as Redeemer. We are told that by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Now, let's think about that. Why do I say as Redeemer? What are sacrifices about? The thing that made it stand out as an excellent sacrifice was that it was offered in faith. Hebrews has taught us that priests offer sacrifices. Why? Because God appointed them to offer sacrifices. Why? For sins. To atone for sins. That's why priests offer sacrifices. That's always why sacrifices were offered. This is taught all through the Bible. Hebrews even says that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So we have every reason to believe that God had instructed Adam and his family, and so all of his posterity that would come from him, about sacrifices and their purpose as a testimony of atonement for sin that God was going to provide. It would have been highly inappropriate for Abel or Adam or anyone else to just decide that, hey, I'm going to be a priest and offer sacrifices to take away my sins. I'm going to offer sacrifices as a testimony that God will take away sin through the shedding of blood. Wouldn't that be a a great thing to do? Uh, Or that it would be a suitable symbol of what God was going to do. Abel didn't just get up one day and say, hey, I think I'm going to do this. God had instructed them about it because we know how God operates. You say, well, it doesn't say anything about that in the text. No, the Bible doesn't possibly tell us all the things that God said. But when we see someone doing this, God doesn't have someone doing empty acts of worship that they have no idea what it's for. He instructed them and and guided them. We have some, of course, clues of that that we can go into where God clothes them with animals and and the thing that he said about the seed of the woman and all those things. We won't get into all those details now. But we have every reason to believe God instructed Adam and his family about these sacrifices. We can be sure that since they did sacrifices, God would have instructed them in how to make these offerings trusting in him for forgiveness of sin. God would not have approved of this otherwise. Wouldn't have approved of what Abel did. So when we look back at Genesis 4, this is what we read. Genesis 4, 3, where we, we have the account of it. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Notice that God respected not just the offering, but Abel and his offering. It was offered as sacrifices that were meant to be offered, in other words. The offerer of the sacrifice offered it in the way that it was meant to be offered. It's just like when we come to the Lord's Supper. We can come in a worthy manner or we can come in an unworthy manner. We can come in a way that's acceptable to God or a way that's not acceptable to God. And what's the distinction? Primarily, if we discern the Lord's body. 
If we're seeing what Christ did, that he, his blood was shed, his body was given, his blood was shed, and we're resting in him, that's how you appropriately come to this Lord's Supper. This is how Abel appropriately came trusting in the sacrifice and what it represented. Cain did not offer his in an acceptable manner, and he became angry because God testified that he was rejected. Now, we don't know how God made that clear. It may be the way he did later, where he would actually consume the sacrifice by fire from heaven, like he did when they first built the tabernacle, like he did when Elijah was on Mount Carmel that we looked at recently. Don't know whether, how they, but somehow he communicated to them clearly, you're approved, you're not approved. How are we approved? We're righteous by faith, right? Continue then from the middle of verse 5. What do we see about Cain? Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Here's the Proverbs thing, right? Okay, come and fear the Lord. Believe what I've told you. Trust in me. You'll, you'll do well. Go in the way of the world. Go in the other way. And uh, sin's at the door. It's beckoning to you. It's desirous for you, he says. But you should rule over it. You should master it. God tells him that he must do well. What would that entail? What would doing well entail? I just want to make sure this is clear. What does doing well entail when you're offering sacrifices? We've seen with Abel. It's trusting God for forgiveness through the shedding of blood. God himself, by accepting Abel and his offering, provided, as Hebrews 11.4 says, witness that Abel was righteous. God said, this man offering sacrifice is righteous. God testified that Abel was righteous by faith. Cain was willing to acknowledge God as the one who gave him his crops, it seems, as creator, but he was not willing to acknowledge him as redeemer. Now, I'm not necessarily going to get into the nature of the sacrifices, that there was one that was from the fruits of the ground, Abel's, I mean, Cain's and Abel's was of the flock of an animal offered. I will say, though, that always in the, when the law came and we have the clarity of all the rules and regulations and stuff, that whenever they offered the fruit of the ground to God as a sacrifice, it was an acceptable thing to do. They were also to offer with that an offering of atonement, of forgiveness for sin. So there's something here to be, be said. I said I wasn't going to get into it. Now I am. But uh, he wanted to be accepted without trusting in a sacrifice for sin. There are lots of religious people like that. Some of them are very devout. You know, they, they, but, but they get angry because they say, I'm a devout. I'm a good person. I'm better than all these other people. I'm more faithful. I, 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 do more, I, I worship more. I pray more. I, I, I do all these things. But they don't want to trust in Christ as an atoning sacrifice. That is offensive to them because, hey, I'm doing this. I don't need that. And they persecute and they become angry toward those who are trusting in the provision that God has made through blood sacrifice. God does not have respect for them or their offerings. And what about you? We have seen in Hebrews that God's accepted sacrifice for our sins is His only begotten Son, crucified for the sins of His people. That's what the first part of Hebrews has laid out page after page. Will you believe? Will you trust in Him 
God should say, do you trust in Him? What a difference it will make if you do. You will know then God's forgiveness by faith. You will know it even better than Abel did in a certain way. Because now that Christ has come, you see what God did to take away sins. Abel sees that now from his vantage point. But you, will, you, you have the privilege of coming into that from this get-go. You will receive the hope of eternal communion with God that we talked about. That hope, that sure hope that you will be with Him forever, growing and fellowshipping in communion with Him. The testimony that God gave of Abel's righteousness by faith in, in sacrifice, faith in the blood atonement, lives on even though Abel has been dead for 6,000 years. As it says, even though he is dead, the testimony still speaks of righteousness by faith. It has stood for over 6,000 years. In fact, now that Jesus has come, it speaks louder than ever. It is actually confirmed by the coming of Jesus, of righteousness by faith, of God accepting a substitute for our sin, because now we see who it was that was substituted for our sin. It was the very Son of God. The, the one, God provided His only begotten Son. This makes you righteous if you believe. This is what makes your hope certain. If you refuse to believe like Cain did, you're unacceptable to God. We all are until we trust in Christ crucified to take away our sins. Without faith, you will die in your sin. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. What a difference then faith makes. It brings you into a new reality that includes, incorporates in that reality, in that paradigm, the true God as both creator and redeemer. Your whole life is now about him albeit not always consistently. By faith, you have hope of eternal communion with God. By faith, you have a transformed life lived for God. By faith, you know Him as Creator who calls into being what is not by His Word. By faith, you know Him as Redeemer who gave His Son to take away your sins. Please stand and let's give thanks to our God. O oh Lord, our God, we praise and thank you for the great things that you have done for us and for the blessing that we have of receiving them by faith. We thank you that when we believe that it brings us into a whole new order of things, it brings us into a whole new paradigm and perspective to live by. Here, here we are now in communion with the living God with a communion that will go on and on, a communion that is greatly accelerated as you work in our lives and as we go on and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the assurance and hope that we have that we will be brought to glory and we will be able to see you as you are. Father, what a grand thing that will be, that we will live together with you forever and ever and that we'll be able to find out your excellence and greatness for all eternity. We will be brought into a fuller service and communion. We thank you, O Lord, that it is a living and growing thing. We pray that you would help us to have this assurance of faith, this confidence, 
and that we would live as those who have a good testimony. Father, that we would be like the ancients who showed that they were trusting you. It was, uh, it was evident by the choices they made, by the decisions that they made, how they walked. Oh Lord, help us then. We know that like them, we are often quite inconsistent. In fact, we're worse than those that are listed in, the, in, in this list in Hebrews 11. But Father, we thank you that, that our hope is not in ourselves, but it is in you. And we pray that more and more we would cast ourselves upon you as our hope and that we would see your mighty hand lifting us up and working in us. Father, give us a, a sweet delight in communion with you and walking with you, one that will transcend whatever trials and difficulties we have. We pray, Lord, that our faith in you would be strong when even there are world calamities. We know that we have a, a, a political system and a news media today that, that likes to, to really capitalize on these things. It almost stirs up things that, that to, to bring uh, trouble and, and to be able to be the one that comes to, to save us. And Father, we know that that's not where salvation is found. That salvation is not found in someone that, that does such things. It's found in you, Lord. You're the one who brings salvation to us. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to, to rest in you as the one who indeed has brought calamity into this world to wake us up to our need to trust in you. Father, we see the politicians playing God and creating calamities so that we would trust in them. It's so artificial. It's not their calling. It's so foolish. So we pray, Lord, that our eyes would be lifted up to the one who reigns in glory and that we would walk with you, Lord, in hope and confidence. We're the ones who rebelled against you. We're the ones who have shame because of our sin. But now, Lord, by your gracious working, you are working in this world to call a people out to yourself and to restore them and to bring them to everlasting glory. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in you, O Lord. We pray then that we would have that, that full assurance of faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the Lord's blessing. Now, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. Amen.